If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Spain's position on Europe's southwestern corner means that through history it's been exposed to influences like no other region on the continent. Giles Tremlett's new brief history, Espana, explores the many geographical, religious and political factors that contribute to a many-layered story of a country whose defining national history is nearly impossible to pin down. He spoke to Eleanor Evans about getting to grips with Spain's tumultuous past. So thanks so much, Giles, for joining the History Extra podcast again. Uh, And you introduced readers to this history with the idea that Spain has no national story that it can celebrate with comfort. Perhaps that's a good aspect to begin with here. What can you say about that? Well, I always uh, I always point to the Spanish national anthem as the as the, as the proof of this. Anybody who's ever watched the Spanish uh, football team La Roja uh, before uh, an important football match, and they've played many uh, over the last decade or so, um, you know, winning World Cups and European Cups. You'll get two teams lined up before a match. Uh, one team will belt out their national anthem um, uh, with all its words, and the other team just hums along. And that's the Spanish team which hums along because it has no national anthem except for a tune. Um, and it has no national anthem because it's never managed to reach agreement over what the words would be. And uh, we all know what national anthems are. They're, you know, they're sort of edulcorated um, uh, versions of our of, of, of history and uh, Spaniards can't actually come to an agreement about what that should look like you know what what the Spanish national narrative is 
and um, and we're still there. People try to write that um, the words to the national anthem from time to time, but it, it always fails. Right. So as a writer then, obviously you've written on many aspects of Spanish history, on Isabella of Castile, on the Spanish Civil War. Um, telling this history, how is your approach different in this sort of account? What's your, your aim with this book? Well, I'm really coming coming at it from sort of three angles that I don't think people necessarily think of when they're thinking of Spain. Um, uh, One is simply to do with geography, with its position, um, you know, on the atlas, if you if you like, uh, you know, Spain is this uh, very strange country. If you think about it, it's just, you know, a dozen miles uh, across the the Strait of Gibraltar from Africa. So it's the closest European country to Africa, and that's had a huge impact on it. Obviously, it's part of Europe at the same time, uh, but it's also part of the Mediterranean, which uh, connects it all the way over to the Middle East um, historically. And then uh, if you stick on to the map, the the circular winds and currents of the Atlantic Ocean, well, hey, presto, Spain is also, or Iberia at least, is also connected to the American continent. That's how, you know, Columbus was able to, in quotes, discover uh, the Americas. So, you know, that means that it's been over the its entire history, you know, the different currents of, have flowed into Spain from different directions of peoples or of cultures, um, and uh, and that's made Spain a very mixed country, if you want, you know, with lots of influences that other countries in Europe wouldn't possibly have had, Um, you know, whether we're thinking about the Islamic invasion of the 8th century, for example, well, you know, um, parts of southern Italy maybe might have experienced something similar and, you know, Eastern Europe, but um, to have that and to have the uh, the Atlantic input and to have the European input and to have the Mediterranean input really makes it a sort of mixing pot. So that's one of my ideas, is that it's a mixing pot and that mixing pot has inevitably brought um, um, this sort of what in Spanish we call mestizaje, which literally is to is to is to mix things up, and um, and that means it's actually been a very sort of dynamic culture and very changeable uh, over the years, which might also explain why it's more difficult to explain and to actually have a uh, a national narrative. So first of all, it's geography, which includes the fact that actually Spain is this very impenetrable country. Um, You know, people who visit it now go to the coasts mainly, but mostly, you know, I'm sitting in Madrid as we speak. I'm, you know, uh, in the highest capital in Europe outside, I think, Andorra. Um, You know, this is a a country that's mostly built on top of a, a, a sort of massive mountain top. And then we have the coasts and we have these two very different Spains, the interior and the exterior. Um, and so that's very different. And uh, and then finally, all that sort of comes together. There are moments when Spain is very open to all these things. And there are moments where Spain sort of seizes up and closes itself off 
from the world. You know, Francoism was a bit like that. Uh, you can go back to the Inquisition and think of it in those terms, sort of the expulsion of Jews and, and Muslims. Yes. So all of those factors, I think we'll we'll dive into in this conversation. But I wanted to also ask about this idea of the four winds, which is uh, Miguel de Unamuno. Is that correctly pronounced? Um, can we talk about this idea and how that influenced Spain? Okay, so Miguel de, de Unamuno was a philosopher at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, very important uh, person in, in, in Spanish intellectual history. And he really embraced this idea, what he called the four winds. And it's slightly what I was explaining earlier, the idea that Spain is exposed to these sort of cultural, political winds that blow in from all directions, from Europe, from Africa, from the Atlantic, from the Mediterranean. And when it's open to all those things, uh, Spain lives through glorious periods of progress. And when it's closed to all those things, Historically, uh, it's, you know, it's gone, if not backwards, at least stood still in time. And, uh, and Unamuna, who was talking at the end of the 19th century when Spain was in, a, in crisis because it had lost its empire and uh, was lagging behind the rest of Europe, well, he sort of, he crystallised or, or, or at least um, vocalised this idea that, you know, open Spain is good, Closed Spain is bad. He was very pro-European. We're now living through a massively pro-European period in Spanish history. And we've done very well, thank you, for the last, you know, 40 years. Okay, so so that's a great sense of how the geographical position has influenced um, Spain very broadly through history. How does it influence the earliest um, aspects of Spanish history, Iberian history? Well, if we go back to sort of prehistory, then we get uh, everything from you know, the period of what's known as the Zanclean Deluge, when the when the Strait of Gibraltar actually dried up, and you know you could walk across from from Africa and different periods in the Ice Ages, for example, when uh, you could sort of island hop across. And uh, and indeed, in the Ice Ages, when um, when uh, Iberia was a sort of refuge for species and uh, and hominins from from around Europe, because it wasn't iced over when the rest of when the rest of Europe was. And then we when we get into early history, well, we've got this sort of magnificent mixture of everything from Romans, Visigoths, uh, Phoenicians, Carthaginians. Byzantine colonies, Greek colonies, Jewish colonies. And so that, again, is Spain sort of open to all these different influences from the Mediterranean. Um, you know, Hannibal starts off his his career in Spain. This is where the elephants came from in the, in the first place. And so Spain is part of this sort of zone of contact, shall we say, between Europe and uh, and the other cultures, and in fact is very privileged at one stage when Europe is going through its so-called dark ages. Well, Spain has all the glories of Al-Andalus, of its Muslim uh, period. Culturally, it is way ahead of of the rest of the rest of Europe at that stage. Um, so that sort of early history of Spain is full of these um, different flows, should we say, uh, cultural flows coming in from different directions and, um, you know, not only impacting Spain, but also impacting 
uh, the rest of Europe. If we think, you know, Hannibal marching north with his um, with his elephants was uh, an important moment. Well, there it is. If we think of some um, Roman uh, emperors, well, you know, um, Britain has Hadrian's Wall, and guess where Hadrian came from? He was Spanish. Um, so, you know, Britain actually has, you know, a Spanish wall, if you want, you know, across the... Um, uh, across the north. So um, Spain has had a large impact, often not really recognised because it was part of the Roman Empire, really. Um, and one of the things I try to correct a bit in my writing is 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 this idea that Spain has been a sort of outlier country in Europe. I don't think it has. I think it's been incredibly influential. Um, we just tend to look at other countries um, more intensely. Yes, well, that idea did really come across for me, I must say. Um, and I, listeners um, listening to you talk about this history may be familiar with um, the more difficult aspects, I suppose. And, and this melting pot that you've already alluded to does lead to some really challenging aspects of this history, doesn't it, with waves of religious fanaticism and ideas of religious purity. How do we see that sort of playing out over the centuries you're writing about? Well, it's really, uh, I mean, there are waves of religious fanaticism, even within Al-Andalus, within the Muslim history of Spain, which, of course, is was lasted for 781 years. I think if we add up, you know, the years from the invasion in the 8th century to the fall of Granada in 1492. I mean, that's, if you think of it in historic terms, if we were to think back into uh, British English history, we'd have to say, you know, that's a period that covers from today back to the Wars of the Roses. It's a vast stretch of time. Granada, which fell in 1492 to the to the to the Christians, well, it still hasn't been Christian for as long as it was Muslim before that. You know, we still got a few, you know, a few decades to go. Um, so that's, um, you know, a very important period. But then, of course, we get into uh, the period that starts with uh, Isabel of Castile um, and Ferdinand of Aragon um, um, about, well, I've written about Isabel as well, um, which is one of these moments where Spain has a massive impact uh, on the world. But within its own uh, uh, territory, it turns in on itself and it decides to go for this sort of wave of of purity, which involves expelling the Jews, uh, which which happens in 1492. Uh, it involves uh, bringing in the Inquisition, which also happens under Isabel, and the Inquisition and the expulsion are very intimately linked. It involves forcibly converting uh, the Muslims in Spain, and then um, a century later expelling uh, their descendants because they're deemed not to be properly converted. So we have this sort of violent uh, and oppressive period in Spanish history. Um, the Inquisition, by the way, is always sort of overplayed um, by non-Spanish historians. In fact, far fewer people died uh, in the Inquisition and died from, say, Protestant witch hunts in the in the rest of Europe. But what matters is 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 the idea that the Inquisition imposed on Spain um, this very uh, strict 
um, um, Catholic doctrine and the idea that really, you know, you had to, it was dangerous to think outside um, your small mental and cultural space. So that was, you know, uh, uh, a very violent and disturbing period. Some Spaniards, you know, still think of it as a glorious period because it also coincides with other events that happened under under Isabel. So, um, so yes, that's one of those examples of what I call closed Spain, Spain turning in on itself. Right. Well, you just alluded to it there, is that in the same period, um, the Spain, I suppose, geographically as we know it today, sort of begins to emerge. What What's at play there in Isabella and Ferdinand's reign that brings these regions more closely together? Well, I mean, to, several things are happening. First of all, um, uh, Isabel and Ferdinand are Castile and Aragon. And when those two bits of Spain come together, they basically create Spain. Um, they're the two halves of Spain which are brought together by their by their marriage and then under their children and grandchildren become, um, uh, if not a single country, and that's one of the things Spaniards love to argue over, when they actually became a country rather than a collection of countries under one monarch. Um, but anyway, we can say that that process started started with them and, of course, they're the people who send Columbus again in that same year, 1492, um, out into the ocean. It wasn't called the Atlantic. It was just called the ocean back then you know, to sail west and to find Asia. And um, and off he sets, you know, lying to his crew about how long this might take and how far they've gone. And he bumps into a group of islands that he thinks are, uh, or Asia, but in fact they're the Caribbean. He's you know discovered the the Americas, and you know Spanish history after that for many centuries is largely about becoming an empire. Very broadly, I suppose this yes, this does kick off sort of five centuries of um, Spanish imperial history. Whereabouts in South America and and in Central America are, are is Spanish influence reaching? Well, uh, Spanish influence reaches, to start with, it reaches the Caribbean and then it gets into Mexico. And we have, you know, the ghastly conquest of the, uh, of the Aztec and Inca empires as they go south and, um, and the whole of the, of the continent falls to, um, to, to Spanish uh, invaders. Uh, the conquistadores, as they're known, the conquistadores, um, who again in in Spanish mythology do all this on their own. Just a few thousand people who, you know, the the phrase, you know, to burn your boats actually comes from uh, Hernán Cortés, you know, reaching the coast of mainland uh, uh, South America and burning his boats literally so that his men can't turn round. And there's only a few thousand of them, and somehow miraculously. They conquer a continent. In fact, what they do is they ally very cleverly with various um, uh, factions and, and uh, you know, are politically very clever, but also um, it, it totally ruthless in their treatment of the um, of what today we would call the, the Mexicans to to begin with. No, so very quickly they take possession of um, uh, a continent 
doesn't mean they control it all. There aren't enough of them, but it does mean that in in sort of European terms, it now belongs to belongs to Spain, apart from the little bit that by mistake um, gets given to Portugal. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I remember as I was a journalist at the time, uh, going to the first um, uh, the first exhumations of mass graves from the Francoist period. And uh, I would go and a couple of other foreign correspondents would go, but no Spanish press would turn up. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. So uh, a moment there in history that obviously has has a long legacy. Um, I want to pick up on something you mentioned about mythologies and this um, mythology one that has sprung up around Cortez's actions. Well, you bring you begin some chapters to references to mythical or apocryphal stories that come to symbolise or perhaps become cornerstones of what was happening in um, Spain or Iberia at the time. Can we talk about that phenomenon and some of uh, some other of Spain's prevailing mythologies? Yes, well. <laughs> Spain often, like other countries, you know, tells itself stories to try and sort of uh, weave this impossible narrative that we've been talking about. If we go back in time, um, you know, it's Hercules is the great founding founding myth of Spain. This is where, you know, many of his... Um, his 12 labours are happening. Um, the Straits of Gibraltar are meant to have been created by him sort of accidentally pushing a hole in the wall and joining the Mediterranean to, to, the, to the Atlantic. Um, and um, mythical stories going through, they also tell, uh, for example, uh, there's an explanation for the for the Muslim invasion of Spain, uh, which is to do with uh, a Visigoth king, one of the last Christian king who who breaks a taboo by by uh, opening the door to a secret chamber, whereas you know all the previous kings had just added another 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 lock, and um, and then you also get. Uh, mythology is then used at the end of the medieval period in the early modern period to try and basically erase the Muslim history of Spain and sort of do a jump between the Visigothic Christians and the uh, and the newly Christianized Spain of uh, of Isabel and and uh, and Ferdinand and that involves again going back to Hercules and trying to trace you know a sort of direct lineage. Uh, back from the the those monarchies um so in a way that's been spain's attempt to sort of you know to iron out the 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 perceived kinks in its history um is to invent stories as we all do all nations uh, have done that and spain is certainly no no exception 
But if we skip ahead then to sort of the, the beginning of the decline of this imperial presence, which inevitably again changes the face of Spain and leads to a lot more internal divisions, which, you know, arguably have been bubbling away over those centuries anyway. What can you tell our listeners about that, this sort of phenomenon? Well, uh, I mean, in the 19th century, Spain, well, the 18th and 19th century, Spain sort of gets into trouble, basically. It's lived, uh, in very simple terms, it's lived off the fat of the land, not its own land. It's lived off an extractive economy in uh, in Latin America, bringing in um, uh, lots of silver, basically, uh, to prop up its its own economy and spending wildly on its wars around around Europe. It's always fighting over bits of Italy, which it controls for 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 a long period, and over Holland, which it also uh, owns and controls for a long period, um, and it uses up a lot of the money there. And it takes uh, loans, it gets into debt, and defaults, and becomes bankrupt, and. Um, uh, but there's a sort of uh, a, an economy evolves where between Spain and Latin America, where also they have a, a, a market of their own, uh, which they only they can sell into, which is Latin America. And all that sort of works quite well until we get to the early 19th century when um, Spain has switched to a Bourbon monarchy the old Habsburg monarchy uh, runs out of fuel as it becomes more inbred, and eventually it's so inbred that it can't have uh, any more children. Charles II is the last uh, Habsburg uh, uh, king. And then it basically gets tied into France and French history. Napoleon appears at the end of the 19th century. Um, he's sort of invited in, but it's sort of invasion by invitation, if you want, to begin with. And uh, and then ordinary Spaniards turn against um, against Bonaparte and the Bonaparte family because uh, Napoleon uh, actually appoints his brother to be uh, uh, the monarch of, of Spain. And so ordinary Spaniards turn against this and Madrid... Uh, and every May we have this. This is our this is our our city uh, uh, fiesta in uh, in Madrid. Is to remember how in 1802 on May the second, the people of Madrid turned against the the French, attacked them in the streets, and basically started what we know as the Peninsula Wars. The Peninsula Wars to us is Wellington and uh, and um, and everything. All the battles he won in Spain. But to Spaniards, it's actually their war of national liberation. And in fact, I, I argue that that really it's the moment where Spain is properly created, where for the first time you see Catalans and Galicians and Basques and Andalus and everybody uh, all fighting on the same side for the same thing, um, which is to free themselves from uh, from the French uh, with the help of uh, Wellington and the and the English. At the same time, um, they're writing a very liberal constitution, um, far more advanced and progressive than anything anything um, that Britain, for example, had seen. And certainly, um, uh, apart from France, which had already had a revolution, uh, you know, it was much more uh, progressive than anywhere else. Um, unfortunately, it then invites back the monarch who had been ousted by Bonaparte 
um, uh, Ferdinand VII, who was known as the desired one because everybody wanted him to come back. Well, he came back immediately threw the constitution in the dustbin, uh, chucked out the people who had written it um, and imposed a sort of new authoritarian um, uh, monarchy. Um, But the the Spanish colonies, the Spanish Empire, had experienced this moment of sort of people's freedom uh, during that period as well. And suddenly they turned around and looked at what was happening in Spain and said, well, we're out of here, basically. And um, very quickly over, you know, a dozen dozen years, Simon Bolivar and other um, liberators in Latin America um, basically shake off the the Spanish yoke it happens over a very short period of time and, in, and is far more dramatic than, than what happens in North America, uh, you know, um, around the same period um, or a bit earlier. So, you know, within the space of a few years, Spain loses its empire. It's left with Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico and the Philippines. That's all that's all that's, all that's left. Um, and then at the end of the 19th century, it even loses them. And it loses them to the Americans. You know, this new power turns up the United States with its with its fleets. The Spaniards have sort of duped themselves into believing they're still a mighty global power, and they're basically you know shot out of the water in a you know in a single morning in both cases, once in Manila and once in um, in in Cuba in eighteen ninety eight, and that's the sort of the foundational trauma, if you want, of contemporary Spain is that moment where they suddenly go, oh, no, you know, here we are. This once mighty empire reduced to nothing. Um, You know, we are only now, you know, a European country. We have no empire, and especially heard at a time when Britain and other countries were gaining empires. You know, the race for Africa was going on, and Spain, you know, experienced this moment of sort of acute introspection and sort of national, national, um, almost uh, a period where everybody is glum and you can see it in the intellectuals at the time. They're all asking, you know, what's gone wrong? What's happened to Spain? Where did we, where did we go wrong? So if we play this um, sense of collective trauma forward, then what does that mean for Spain in the early 20th century? Well, we're still at it. We're still trying to um, um, trying to work out how to deal with that part of of Spanish history, uh, and so um, the Franco dictatorship ended in 1975. Forty years, Spain had had a single story about its past that was taught at schools, that was printed in the newspapers, that was told on the television, that was told on the radio. and um, But at the same time, a lot of people knew that it was rubbish, basically. Um, and so, but in 1975, it's also has this remarkable transition to democracy, which happens over five years, basically, um, uh, Franco, uh, when he dies, declares that um, Spain is going to become a monarchy again. And basically, um, uh, Juan Carlos II, now a somewhat disgraced former monarch, but anyway, he receives all the powers of a dictator 
and gives them all up um, uh, to initiate a democracy. And that democracy takes off. But it's also very fragile. People are very worried that there will be a coup, that people want to go back to Francoism. And so a lot of things that could have been done, and one of those is addressing history or or indeed trying to um, bring some form of justice to the families or the people who had been repressed by, by Franco and by his regime, that was all sort of swept under the carpet. The important thing was to look forward, uh, to consolidate, uh, and indeed there was a coup attempt in 1981. So it wasn't a, this was a very real threat and it was seen off. Um, but after that, it still took a long time, not until the end of the 20th century, really, for people to start um, properly investigating Francoism. And I'm not talking about the historians who were already doing that, but for it to appear in the public sphere, in newspapers. I remember as I was a journalist at the time, uh, going to the first um, uh, the first exhumations of mass graves from the Francoist period. And uh, I would go and a couple of other foreign correspondents would go, but no Spanish press would turn up. And it was because, it, you know, people were scared of the past. They were scared of their own history. And they were scared that revealing it would suddenly bring back all the old arguments and we would go back to the old violence as well, that it would spark another civil war. In fact, that hasn't happened and all those arguments are out there. Um, uh, and to me, that's a sign of the maturity of Spanish democracy, that you can have the old arguments, but without everybody wanting to get into a fight or starting to, 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 to kill one another. But what it does mean is we haven't reached any agreement. Um, and so we are still arguing about how that past uh, should be should be treated, should the monuments be taken down, should the old streets be renamed, uh, should the people who the, the 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 people who belong to the death squads should they be named? Um, is there some route through the courts for people to? Um, demand justice for things that happened to them even in the 1970s. You know, some of the perpetrators are still around. And um, uh, Spain has largely tried not to do that, um, I think, in the hope that everybody will die before, everyone who's involved will die before you you get to that point. And you get these sort of um, bizarre situations where Spain is trying historic crimes against humanity in Latin America. It's taking the Pinochet regime to court, but it has an amnesty law in Spain, which was passed uh, in the 1970s, which means it can't do the same to its own dictatorship. And one of the great ironies is that now the families of the victims are taking their cases to Argentina, on the basis that under international law, um, um, you have a right for your case to be heard anywhere else if it can't be heard at home, uh, if it's a human uh, human rights case. So there's a lot of arguing over history going on, and uh, personally, I think I think that's quite healthy. 
I think we should be arguing over history, especially as we can without um, uh, without killing one another. But it also means that the old fractures of the 1930s, Catalonia, for example, or the Basque country, that they're also out in the open. And, um, you know, they've re-emerged and we're arguing uh, about those things too. But again, I think that's, that's natural. You know, we went through a, an exceptional period, two exceptional periods. One was dictatorship where you couldn't debate anything. One was straight after the dictatorship when nobody wanted to debate certain things. And now we're back to the to reality. And this is what Spain is like. You know, it's a fractious country, likes a good old argument. Um, and if it can have it, you know, um, uh, passionately but safely in parliament or in the newspaper columns, that's fine. Why not? You know, that's democracy. Um, and in the meantime, you know, Spain has done very well. Thank you very much from, you know, belonging to the European Union. The last decade or so hasn't been that great, but it hasn't been for anybody uh, in Europe particularly. And, um, you know, who knows what the what the future will bring. That was Giles Tremlett. His latest book, España, A Brief History of Spain, is published by Head of Zeus and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. Collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.